Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Rough Translation has a new season, and their host, Gregory Warner, is here. That's this week on Foreign Policy Playlist. I'm your host, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Each week, we recommend one podcast from around the world. Today, we're happy to share one of our favorite shows, the NPR podcast, Rough Translation. They have a new season that just launched, and it's all about the world of work. I have to admit, I'm a big fan of Gregory Warner, the host of Rough Translation. And I was maybe a little bit too excited to geek out over radio stuff. Hello. I love that we're both standing. From one closet to another. No, 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 I'm sitting. I just have posture. (laughs) (laughs) You look like you're standing, though. Oh, my God. I do. My thing does become a standing desk, so I could rise up. um, But uh, (laughs) This conversation was really fun. So first, you're going to hear our kind of long chat. And then the first episode of Rough Translation's new season. Greg, welcome to the show. I don't think you need much of an introduction. I feel like the listeners of this show who haven't heard your show, I feel like are probably in a minority. <laughs> like I'd be surprised if people haven't first listened to Rough Translation and then listened to our show. In any case, it's, it's, it's a real treat to finally get to meet you. Yes. No, no. It's, it's great to talk. Thank you for inviting me. Before we get to your new season, which is all about work and how work, the world of work is playing out around the world and what we can learn from it. I just want to ask you a kind of nerdy radio question first. And I'm not the first person to say this, but I feel like one of the things that makes you unique is I feel like your writing really sets you apart as a radio person. It's just it's very clean. There's something very beautiful about the writing. But I'm curious from the making of it, if the writing is actually your favorite part of the process. Uh... It's definitely not my favorite part at all. <laughs> no, it's not at all. Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, my, my favorite part is m- much more of like moments that come out in an interview that you didn't expect. And then 
trying to think about what they mean, but also keep a a face that doesn't show that you you're just trying to process everything they're telling you. So so all of that kind of figuring things out, I I really like. Yeah, I mean, there's just when we do make rough translation copies. I mean, as as anyone who knows who's been a listener, and in our process, we have lots and lots and lots of listeners. We get listeners from any community that we're talking about, uh, as well as lots of outside listeners. So it takes a lot of people listening. And my first drafts are terrible. I mean, and then in subsequent drafts, subsequent drafts, we're like, no, that's what we meant. That's what we meant. And so I think the writing is like more chiseled over time than uh, you know that just sprung from some kind of space of inspiration. That's fair. And I also imagine for a show like Rough Translation, the writing of it also is important because you're trying to translate other parts of the world. So you can't just depend so much on the conversation itself, as wonderful as it might have been. There's so much context that you need to kind of cut in and out explaining what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, as a practical matter, just really radio to radio, uh, one thing that we are definitely trying to do as a show is just give a platform to more local storytellers or storytellers who are based in a place. And so our process is often extremely collaborative where they're telling us a story or we, we do what's called a brain dump where they, mm. they literally are telling the story to me, but then multiple times. I mean, the episode we just did, there was multiple, multiple conversations. Sometimes these brain dumps can be hours long, three, four hours long. And then you do another one and another one. And you're both trying to figure out together, well, what, is, what does that mean? And what does this mean? So then when we come down to the writing, it's really just trying to use as many of as much of that conversation as possible. Yeah. So I think that actually sets up well for this episode we're about to hear. It's the first one in the series. It's about this really interesting story of this essentially thief in China who became this viral sensation. Do you want to talk to us more about how, how that came to be, how that story came to be? Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, I think what happened was Emily Feng, uh, who's uh, NPR's Beijing correspondent, she came with, um, I believe she came with a different story. <laughs> she came originally with a fascinating story about a Russian guy who was trapped in a Chinese game show, a game show that was essentially, if you perform well, if you sing well, finalists will be in a boy band. But yes, yeah, so, so this was essentially about this guy who got on this game show and then really didn't want to be there and said, I, uh, I'm i just going to do a terrible job. I'm just going to sing in a lackluster way and surely I'll be voted <laughs> off. But the opposite happened and the, the fans loved his lackluster performance. <laughs> and they kept voting him on more and more. And so the question is, why root for mediocrity? You know, huh. why, why, not just mediocrity, why root for for not wanting to do the job? And it tapped into really something called, well, as we explained in the show, something called um, song culture, which is the uh, sense that, that nothing adds up and um, it won't, won't lead to anywhere. Um, hard work won't lead anywhere. And so us talking about this, this Russian guy, we didn't have access to the Russian mm. guy. So in terms of our, our, our process, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't make sense to do the story if we couldn't actually talk to him, which led us to thinking about the influence, song influencers and ultimately led us to uh, to the guy who, who the story is about. So essentially, it's like she had this long brain dump with you about this Russian guy. You couldn't get access to him. And then you figured out who you could get access to. And that was how the episode. <laughs> Which is actually a, our part of our process. I mean, it's so fortunate that we have uh, NPR has all these international correspondents. But the fact that she could tell us, hey, she was really interested in song culture 
And then I could send her a couple of emails every so often saying, hey, we're still interested in song culture. She ended up finding other song influencers. And in this episode, we meet a couple of them, including one particularly striking story of a, of a scooter thief whose one little video, one little viral video where he said he didn't want to work anymore caught an incredible amount of tension. Yeah, I won't give any more spoilers for the episode. You can you can listen after this after this conversation. But one thing that did strike a chord in me, it almost felt like there's something kind of Gen X about it. Or I don't know, like like slackerism or I don't know if that kind of hit a note for you too. Well yeah, I mean there's a ton of parallels and one of the questions that we 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 had going in was given this this attention to burnout and obviously tapping into something that a lot of uh, people are feeling, young Chinese people are feeling, why are we not seeing what we see in the United States, the great resignation, this this mass quitting? You don't see people quitting their jobs, even though people are expressing a hopelessness around their work. We're, we're interrogating really something that I think all of us have felt, uh, but in its cultural context in China. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, you're, you're mentioning trying to sort of learn why say people aren't quitting in China, even though they may feel this hopelessness. I'm curious, whose idea was it in the first place to do this whole season on work? You know, I think that, uh, I, I think I feel like I got to credit my wife for this one. She said, you know, you should do this whole series about work. <laughs> I think she just said that. And, um, uh, it it did tap into something I feel like I've been... Um, I mean, this was pretty personal for me because, you know, I've been hosting the show for five years now and uh, love it. I mean, it's it's really my dream job. It's fascinating. I love everything about it, except um, it's weird to be burned out in a job that you love. It's, it's a little odd. I wouldn't have think that burnout would happen if you, you know, enjoy your job, but it can. And... Um, led me to a book called Time Off, which led me to an essay by Bertrand Russell, a fascinating essay from 1925 called In Praise of Idleness, uh, where he talks about idleness being a privilege of the aristocracy and more people need access to idleness. And it got me kind of thinking, well, yeah, how are people around the world interacting with work and with rest? You know, we as international correspondents, we tend to talk about work, you know, it's a question of labor, labor issues, economic issues, but it is still where people spend most of their days. And it is where people interact with each other. Yeah, one of the big takeaways for the series for me has been just how much pe- culture people bring to workplace culture. There's so much in how people, uh, what people expect from work, expectations around time off and, um, and all that, that. That Yeah, when you unpack them, I mean, hopefully, and this is the premise of, of our show, you get some perspective on yourself. So did it help you with your burnout? I would say I feel pretty good. (laughs) I mean, particularly, I think working on this one episode about France, where technically it is forbidden by the law to eat lunch at your desk. So you have to go out and enjoy a meal outside your workplace. It forces you. And of course, there's also a corollary French uh, tradition to uh, not talk about work at lunch. It did. Yeah, it made me think a lot about um, my usual MO, which is uh, an in-studio <laughs> lunch. Uh, so, yeah, no, no it, it's definitely certainly it, it, working on the series has certainly thought made me think a lot about, you know, how I work and what I expect from my work day. Any last thoughts, Greg? You know, I, I'll just say one last thought. I think my last thought is I thought that doing a series about work would be a kind of 
I guess, a break from the news and a bit light and a bit uh, a bit way of thinking about how people work around the world. We would have, you know, interesting stories. And it just, it felt that we kept coming up against, even though we were asking people about work, these big, big stories, uh, questions about a past 40 years ago, a dictatorship that fell, that still resonates in the work world. Uh, we talked to Ukrainians. I mean, oftentimes work has become the way in which they're engaging with the war and then vice versa. It just felt more and more to me like, wow, yes, we do spend most of our waking life at work. And a lot of our identity is wrapped up in work and it's how we kind of process the world uh, and, or, or at least have some sort of role in it other than just, you know, reading the news or uh, having opinions. And so, yeah, so, so it's, it's been definitely for me, uh, it's changed how I, I think about the reporting because if we kind of focus on something like work, which feels very relatable, um, yeah, you end up talking about everything but. I guess that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for chatting. No, thanks. It's always such a pleasure. I, I love it. That was Gregory Warner. And now, here's the first episode of the new season of Rough Translation. You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. Sometimes a teacher can tell you something, and you don't hear the sting behind their words until much later. When Aris was growing up in Hubei province in China, her teacher would single her out. My teacher, she would say, you see, Aris was not smart, but her grades were so good. This was because she was hardworking. This was supposed to be praise. She didn't mean to hurt me, but I felt those words really hurt me. The lesson that Aris drew from that was that failure was just one missed alarm clock away. And her mom had an expression. Early birds. Early birds have something to eat. The phrase that I know is the early bird catches the worm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's similar. Years later, when Aris would grow up to become a high school teacher herself, she didn't want to shame her students into working hard. But she worried. Her students didn't seem to have that work ethic needed for the grueling high school exams that can decide your future career. Her students were only five years younger than her, but already felt like a different generation. When I was a student, I was very obedient. Maybe because we have fewer temptations, like mobile phones or video games. They have so much temptations, so they didn't work hard. So Aris gave herself homework. She would play video games. League of Legends, LOL. And read the sports pages. Oh, did you know that someone has won the champion? She wanted to motivate her students by connecting with them. So I am interested in everything my students are interested in. And then one day, she remembers, the bell rang, the class was still noisy, and she'd asked one boy to sit down and resume studying. But he just looked at her, and he said, no, and smiled. So I just asked him, what was he doing? And then he said, <laughs> And this phrase he says, I will not study. I will become a boss and I will not work for others. It's said in an unfamiliar accent. It's not a standard Mandarin. The students tell her, oh, it's a new joke online. And she thinks 
okay, if this is something my students are connecting with, then I need to know about it. So that night, she looks it up. And what she finds is this video that she later learned was causing lots of people in China to rethink all those lessons about working hard that Aris heard as a kid. It's a video of this guy. He is handcuffed to the bars on the wall of a police station somewhere. We first heard this story from NPR's Beijing correspondent Emily Fang. Judging by his accent, he's in southern China. His hair is kind of disheveled, his eyes are going all over the place, and it turns out he's jailed because he'd been caught stealing scooters. It seems to have been filmed on a local television station. And in this video interview, whoever's asking the questions um, says, why do you keep stealing scooters? Like, can't you get a real job? And the guy in the video... The guy who's been arrested says, uh, working in this life is impossible for me. It's impossible for me to work. And this was the phrase that Aris first heard from her student. And I saw it and I realized it was from a thief. A thief with apparently millions of followers across China. He's not complaining about a specific job. But he's talking about work in general and the fact that he won't do it at all. He's not suited to it at all. And that was really what struck a chord with people. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. That video would ricochet across Chinese work sites and offices. Today on the show, how a scooter thief became an icon for brewing discontent and why some guy saying he just didn't want to work anymore came to be seen by the state as such a threat. And he says, my office is filled with police officers. In this story, the government uses surveillance and censorship to try to stamp out burnout. We'll see how that's working out for them. The scooter thief and what he unleashed among Chinese youth, from tech workers to high school students, even to a high school teacher. Oh, he was amazing. He was so brave. But I didn't want to go to prison, so I just worked for you today. It's Slackers at Work after this break. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be- My name's Kurt Jaimungo, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast, the show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness, exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Be right back. We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Recorder starting. Here with Emily Fang. Great. So yeah, so where do you wanna where do you wanna start? With a with a rock show? Yeah. To understand why that video came to mean so much in China, we're going to start with a cultural phenomenon known as song. I actually first noticed song because of a bubble tea shop chain, and they specialized in making drinks that had really long and elaborate names that all referenced some universal problem that was very song. For example, like, my ex's life is better than mine, fruit tea... Or, I've achieved absolutely nothing, black tea. 
And I was discussing it one day with my producer in Beijing, Alwyn Tsao. She was like, oh yeah, song. Actually, there's this guy I went to high school with. He started this band called Trip Fuel, and they're all about song. So you went to the show? Yeah, we, we met them in this live house in Shenzhen. So there were probably about 200 people who showed up, which is a good crowd for a Thursday. And one thing that really struck me is everyone was sitting down at the beginning of the show. The live house had set up all these chairs lining the perimeter of the room, and people were just kind of plopped there, looking at their phones, sleeping. (laughs) What? A lot of people with their heads on other people's shoulders. And so I started talking to some of these people, like, why would you come all the way to a rock show, a live house, and then just take a nap? And everyone was like, well, I'm tired. It's like a party for exhausted people. No, completely. Like, Shenzhen's kind of a special city because it's China's technology hub. It's basically China's Silicon Valley, and all these really hot new startups are there. There's something called 996 in China. It's working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. It's technically now illegal. In practice, most tech companies do this, and Shenzhen is notorious for 996. But it turns out that being exhausted, at least in this crowd, it's almost like a membership card in a club known as Song. Song is an actual Chinese character, which can be combined in various phrases. It just means depressive or tragic, in general, sad. The fact that people feel that their work is pointless, they're simply going through the motions to just get through the day every day at their jobs. The show slowly picks up. Trip Fuel is the last act to perform. And most of their fans are between the ages of like 20 to 30-somethings. A lot of them are working white-collar jobs, which might be prestigious, but don't often pay that much in China. And even though labor laws are starting to get a little bit more strict, it's still really common to work overtime, unpaid, basically every night of the week. So they have no personal time of their own. They're often only children, so they've got financial burdens to make sure that they can take care of their older relatives. The band members feel this. You know, they're struggling with the same issues, but I think that's also what connects them to their fans. Their lyrics are about watching your life happen. Like being a passenger in your own life and watching your dreams slowly die. So the lead singer of the band, his name is Manager Chen. That's his stage name and his actual job title. He is a manager. He manages financial products and derivatives at a provincial bank. Towards the end of their act, he he pauses in between two songs and he says, thank you all for coming to his fans. Thank you to the band members. But also thank you to my bank managers for letting me be here. And everyone kind of laughs and applauds because they, like that's part of a shtick. So a bunch of tech workers nodding off at a math rock show may not seem like a big threat for the Chinese government to stress about. But when we were talking to Eris, the high school teacher, she said she would not go to one of these concerts. She doesn't like what song culture represents. 
then you are spreading negative energy. Negative energy is something the government has been campaigning against for years. And Aris says there's something shameful about sharing how exhausted you are. When you say that you are tired, um, it's like uh, you might be weaker than others or you might not be suitable for the job. Not just the job you're hired for, but the bigger job of building China. Like uh, you could see the faster development of China and the, 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 propeller, the propeller behind the development is each Chinese people's efforts. It's a principle that was ingrained in Aris since primary school. The new China needs everyone to work hard to build up the country. But though she wasn't admitting it, Aris was really exhausted. As hardworking as she was as a teacher, it wasn't the career she wanted for herself. Her parents had pressed her into getting her teaching degree. Traditionally, it's considered to be a great job for a For a girl to become a teacher, it means you have more time to take care of your children and your family. Our parents bring us up, so we should be grateful for their efforts. Um, So when they are old, we should also take care of them. Aris had other dreams for what she wanted for her career, but she felt she had a duty to obey her parents. So I tried to be a good teacher. And I am aware that I have to work hard for my students and for my responsibility. And if the bad feelings come, then let it come and just don't forget to do what I need to do right now. Eris was living with her parents then. Most nights she'd leave school at 9 p.m., take the bus home, and wake up at 6.30 to take the bus back to school. She didn't see any way out, which is why she was so intrigued by that video of the arrested scooter thief being asked by a local journalist, why don't you just get a job? Uh, He just speaks out what what everyone wants to do, but there's not to. And that video gave Aris a way to talk about those bad feelings in the form of a shared joke. Like, and sometimes when I, when I didn't feel good and I said, oh, I don't want to work for others today. <laughs> like I said, oh, he was amazing. He was so brave. But I didn't want to go to prison. So I just work for you today. <laughs> <laughs> like I would follow his example, but I don't want to be in jail. So I'll just yeah. keep my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like a joke for us. A joke that let her talk about these taboo feelings around giving up, being irresponsible. So who was this guy, this scooter thief? The guy in the video, his name is Zhou Liti. And when he says this phrase, working in this life is impossible for me. The only way to live is by stealing things. And besides, I like coming to jail. I've been arrested so many times, going to jail is like coming back home. His saying, there's no way that I could ever work in this life, just took off. After the video explodes, it spawns an entire subculture of Jolie fandom. They splice up Joe's original interview and they set it to corny retro music. People pretend to be Joe and they riff 
on his philosophy. People posting rebellious acts that they've done in their daily lives and citing Jolichi as their inspiration. Online forums discussing about how people can best slack off work while still uh, making it seem like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. His mugshot, people start pasting his, like a cartoon of him, saturated so that it looks like that famous poster of Che Guevara, the communist Argentinian guerrilla fighter. He does actually look a little bit like, actually he looks a lot like Che Guevara. He's got the same kind of like peaked eyebrows, dark, long hair, pointy chin. He's got this like scruffy good looks thing to him. People start calling him Tia Guevara, Tia being the Chinese word for to steal. And meanwhile, Joe himself is still behind bars. He's sitting in jail with no internet and he has no idea this is happening. He's in there for the fourth time for stealing scooters. Surprise, surprise. But in the spring of 2020, he's about to be released. A lot of these videos are entitled like, Jolie T, his, you know, his final day before coming home, or finally our, our leader comes back to us. The ironic thing about Joe becoming a slacker hero for young white-collar workers is that he had started working at a much earlier age than most of his fans had to, and in much grittier jobs. He was born to a really poor family in rural Guangxi, and he quit school when he was in third grade. He has done construction jobs and some menial jobs making bricks in various factories across Guangxi province. Do we know why? Why was his family stuck in the bottom? Well, so his mother has always had some some illness where she's not able to work very regularly. His father is physically very ill, so is not able to, to labor, to go out like most men in the village and do construction work and earn a steady wage. Every time he got out of jail and he went back home, his home was just as run down as it was before, whereas everyone else in the village was building up their homes and modernizing them. And I think when he says, you know, I don't want to go back home, jail is better, I think he's referring to the fact that he feels a sense of failure, that his home, his family, has not kept, uh, has not kept a pace to the way the rest of China is developing. Joe had become an icon for people that wanted to opt out of the rat race. For the real Joe, it was more like he'd been left behind from China's growth story. Zhou Li-Chi emerges from prison at 6.30 in the morning on April 18th, 2020. To put this in perspective, pandemic lockdowns have only recently ended. Interprovince travel is still heavily restricted. Outside the prison, though, he finds a crowd of fans. Reporters and well-wishers waiting outside the prison for him. Also, talent scouts. Offering him up to half a million U.S. dollars to be their brand ambassador and to sell products for them online. And the police, who do not like all this attention he is getting one bit. They whisk him away. They bring him to the local police station, his hometown. And the police give him a talk. The morning that Joe is released from prison, the police sit him down at a table in the police station and they give him a talk. A talk that is immediately posted online with a soundtrack. They're like, listen, we know you're a bad guy. You've done a lot of bad things in your life, but we trust that you're going to do the right thing from here on forward. You're going to be a good influence in society, right? 
And he's like, yes, I've learned my lesson. I'm never going to steal scooters again. I just want to live a quiet life and farm. But immediately on that first day out, he's being approached by talent scouts who want him to go on videos and hawk products. And they're offering sums of money for one appearance in one video that are astronomically higher than anything Joe has made in an entire year of labor. All these live streaming companies were like, please, please, like, can you sign up as our brand ambassador? Like, there are literally hundreds of strangers coming to his house, bringing him gifts, expensive gifts, and trying to sign him up for these brand deals. But he tells them no. And he says, nope, I've said it before. I will not work for anyone. Signing a contract means I would become their employee, and that would be eating my own words. And you can hear one reporter asking Joe, Seriously? Are you sure that you're not going to take these deals? Are you going to stick with that decision? Do you even know what live streaming is? It's actually really lucrative. She's really surprised he's turned these companies down. And and that becomes viral, too, because people see that refusal to work for an internet marketing agency as proof that Joe is sticking to his principles after all these years in prison. And this seals Joe's reputation as an anti-work icon. And the authorities seem to be nervous. The, uh, a Chinese ministry comes out and said, Zhou Li Qi has been blacklisted. Nobody can ever work with him. He has a bad social influence. And no one should be paying any attention to him. Why are we giving a convicted felon and a thief all of our attention? He's a bad example. Two months go by. And then he opens up his own accounts and posts this video. It's just him facing the camera. And he says... I apologize. I did some bad things. He says he's learned that there are young people who are copying his behavior and learning from him. And he tells them, don't copy me. Just mind your own business and live your own life well. He's apologizing to people who have followed him for all these years. Wow. He's apologizing to his fans. Yep, he wants to apologize to his family for not being there for them. In some of the videos, he's apologizing to this woman who he apparently lost, let go, because he wasn't a good person at the time. And then he puts out other videos. All about, like, studying hard. There's a video where he breaks up a card game. And he walks in and he grabs the cards and he throws them to the side and he said, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm talking to you and you too. You guys need to, you guys need to work. It's like it's become the productivity police. Yeah, you know, there are all these errands that you have to do. You know, you haven't filled up your car with gas. You're really not this type of person. I know you're not this type of person. The question for his fans was, what type of person is Joe? Is he still the icon of slacking off, who turned down hundreds of thousands of dollars in brand deals because he did not want to work for others? Or is he this new moralist, promoting the status quo? His fans are confused. At one point, he even does a live stream, like an online talk with the local police station to like tell people to behave and be upright citizens. Emily finds herself scrutinizing these work evangelist videos, trying to figure out, is this the real Joe? Or was there someone just outside the frame of these videos making him say these things? And all of a sudden, I learned that he's opened a barbecue joint. 
in his home province, Guangxi. So Joe has become a boss. Yeah, we just called him his restaurant, and and he's there every night, like around 8 p.m. onwards. But he won't do phone interviews. Apparently, a lot of people call the restaurant asking to talk to him over the phone. So his employees were like, nope, you just got to come here. You're very welcome to hang out with him as long as you buy our food. So Emily and Owen fly down to the province of Guangxi. They check into a hotel, not really knowing what version of Joe they're going to meet that night. Will he be the slacker hero of old or this virtuous Joe of late? And then they get to the restaurant. I immediately knew it was his restaurant because there was a giant picture of his face dressed up as Che Guevara in the front. Let's, uh, let's order dinner. So it's like fluorescently lit and it's covered with posters uh, with slogans like, you know, all there is to life is a good beer and a good barbecue and puns about drinking, essentially. I quickly notice it is all men. Like we're the only women in this two floor restaurant and there's shouting and there's people like chugging beers. It's like a it's tables and tables of men who are taking off their shirts because they're sweating from eating so much. And it's a game to just rack up as many empty beer bottles as possible. We asked the waiter, you know, like, is Joe here? Is Mr. Joe? Is We call him Boss Joe. Is Boss Joe here? Joe Lobanzaima. And uh, I think she immediately mistakes us for, like, um, some, like, ditzy floofs who are here to get an autograph or something. It happens a lot. Fans still come to the restaurant, and he is, he is mobbed on the regular by people who want to take selfies with him. They meet some of these fans, and they learn that despite Joe's apology videos and all his hard work videos that he did after prison, the fans are here because of his original video. That is what he is still famous for. So Emily and Owen sit down to dinner. They talk to more fans. They wait some more. No close time. Owen and I just kind of sat there until midnight, hoping that Boss Joe would show up. He never did. We were exhausted from having traveled down there early that morning. We actually left him a note explaining that we were reporters from Beijing and we wanted to interview him for a podcast. So they go back to their hotel, and then late that night, they hear a knock at their hotel room door. It's the police. We got to see your passport for COVID prevention reasons. I don't know why the police would have to come by to check your documents at 2 a.m. Weird, I gave my passport and you scanned it and sent a picture to the police when I checked in, per Chinese law. Why do you got to see my actual passport? I mean, it just went on and on in circles and you eventually give it to them. But I realized that they probably had been keeping tabs on us. The next night, they're back at the barbecue joint. And we walked up to his office, knocked on his door, hoping that he would be there. And indeed he was. Joe Lichi opens the door and he looks exactly like um, how he looked in all these videos that I'd watched of him. Like, he's got the long, dark hair. He's got the dark eyebrows. But he looks really stressed. He's super serious. And he immediately greets us and says, "Um, what can I do for you guys? When Rough Translation returns, it's Boss Joe. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. 
Back to our story with Emily Fang in the barbecue joint. Joe has finally shown up for his interview, but something isn't right. We explain who we are, and he brings us to another side room. And he says, okay, okay, I've actually got a really important meeting in my office right now. And we peek in, and we see like 10 to 12 guys. I thought he was in a business meeting. So we say, no problem. Dear meeting, we'll be outside having dinner. Meet us afterwards, and we'll talk. What are some of the things on the Barbecue squid. He comes out about half an hour later looking even more harried, even more stressed. And he says, my office is filled with police officers. They suddenly came by to do a fire inspection of the restaurant. And then before that, I got this random call from someone who said he worked in state security. So this is like China's version between the CIA and FBI saying two reporters from Beijing were going to come down and try to interview me. And then I was supposed to refuse at all costs. And as he's saying this, he sits down and he gets a phone call on his phone. And it's from the same state security guy. And I can hear him over the speaker on Joe's phone asking, where are you? What are you doing right now? Who are you talking to? Are you in the restaurant? And Joe is completely bewildered. He doesn't know what's going on. He's like, yes, 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 I'm in the restaurant. Where else would I be? It's my working hours. So we chat for a little bit. We try to make small talk. He's still trying to be nice, and this is what kind of breaks my heart. He's trying to be a good host. He asks us if we have a good time. He really apologizes that he can't, like, sit down and have a proper drink with us. At this point, he goes back to his office. You know, after he left, more people started coming in. They're dressed in all black. They're dressed in windbreakers. The new diners that came in didn't order anything, anything alcoholic to drink, which is, stands out when you've got tables full of men pounding back liters of beer every few minutes. I realized that all the people sitting around us uh, are watching us quite closely. One of them begins filming us with his cell phone camera. So I think that, yeah, there were a, uh, there were a number of plainclothes police in the, in the restaurant with us. The police, of course, were there because Emily was there. They don't want Joe telling her his story. But later, when Emily and Owen get back to Beijing, they'll realize that the censorship, it goes deeper. A lot of the tribute videos that people had made in 2016, 2017, those had been taken down. Joe's original viral video was still up, but all of the creative sabotage videos... A lot of the tributes to his slackerdom, the empowered office workers praising him. They won't find any of that. And so this meeting, it's as close as they'll get to Joe. At the very end, he, he came out one last time. There was a man, I guess a plainclothes officer, kind of holding him by the elbow. I think they wanted to do it to show that, like, Joe's fine. He's out and about. He's totally normal. This is a totally regular evening for him. My producer wants to take a picture with Joe, and he, like, normally would, and he said on interviews before, always takes pictures with fans, but he hesitates, and he he doesn't want to say no, but, like, Owen has to ask several times, and finally he's like, sure, okay. He has changed a lot. He's so, he was so carefree when he was, um, like, several years ago. We get out of the restaurant, and she was like, 
that's a completely different guy from the the Zhou Lichi of of the videos that I've watched. The way he speak he spoke was so um he was so stressful now. And suddenly, a very grown up man. Ironically, like he may have been more free to do whatever he wanted back when he was a scooter thief than now. So why is all of this extra scrutiny on Joe happening now? All of this is playing out in the midst of the global coronavirus pandemic. And China wants to put on this image that it's controlled the pandemic, its economy has bounced back. And to some extent it has, but the country is still hurting. I mean, a lot of people are still out of jobs. And so this is the time when the local government, the central government, they need people to step up. They need people to start having more babies and producing the future generation of workers. They need people to work more. They need people to manufacture more goods they can export to the U.S. They need people to be paying their taxes. I mean, the engine that is the Chinese economy needs to be running more efficiently than ever. And so people like Zhou Liqi, I think that feels particularly dangerous now. You will never know what might happen to you next moment. Aris spent lockdown in her own apartment. She'd moved away from her parents. And for the first time, she had lots of time alone to think. So if I die right now, I would feel very angry because I didn't leave for Aris right now. She thought about the rules of society, how so few of them made sense. She wanted to learn the logic behind those rules, and that turned into a desire to study law, which is what she decided to do. I decided to quit. To leave teaching and enroll in law school. I submitted my letter of quit uh, in August. But she wasn't going to tell her parents, or not yet. When I am admitted, I will tell them. That's my plan. You'll get into law school, and that's when you'll... Call them up and say... Yeah. (laughs) What made this plan more complicated was that she'd signed a contract when she started teaching school, that she'd teach for a minimum of six years or pay a fine. She saved up enough to pay the fine, but when she called the school and told them this, they called her parents. She thinks they wanted her parents to talk her out of it. But when she came home to face her parents' wrath, she realized the situation at home was worse than she thought. Her mom told her, that she had lost the equivalent of $50,000 gambling. And she told her her father didn't know any of this. She was afraid they might get divorced unless Aris could do something to help them. A huge sum of money. Uh... Did you have that kind of money? To be able to pay it off? I could help her pay the debt, but it meant I will sacrifice my own plan. Yeah, it means moving back home, going back to my job. Mm. And uh, I may not have another, I mean, sometimes the courage comes suddenly. And I'm not sure whether I will have another, another time of bravery. 
I mean, it's like I am already, I'm already twenty six. This felt like her one shot to change her career and change her life. But did that mean becoming the kind of person who failed to help her family? It's like if I have a trouble, if I if I owe others so much money, my parents will spare no efforts to pay them off for me. So in the same way, I should do the same. I asked Eris if, in these tough moments, she ever thought about Joe, the scooter thief, and she said no. But Joe's message had continued to be a guiding influence on her decisions in a way that couldn't really be constrained by any censorship. Though the government may have silenced Joe in his restaurant, his viral video had given her a point of connection with her students, and allowed her to really talk to them in the way that she'd always hoped to do as a teacher. We had many. Conversations,、uh, and they would share me with their dreams, and I felt that、uh, these students、uh, were able to pursue their dreams. And I, I also told them that I envied them because they could make their own decision and their choices. Then my my students told me that I I could also be myself, and they told me that the most important thing is to be happy. I'm sorry, I'm little.、Um, I I just I just feel I just feel very moved when I when I think of what 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 my my students told me, then I just I just realized that all my life choices were made by others. Maybe I could for for I could forgive or I could understand why why this happened. But now I cannot forgive myself anymore. I think if I continue to make the choice that others made for me, it means that I was not responsible for my own life. So I think I I should be brave for a time. I mean, I should live for myself. So when Aris thought about how to help her mom get out of this debt, and what it meant for her to put her parents first. She thought about what her students told her, but finally, I I made a irresponsible choice. <laughs> She's decided to just pay ten percent of her mom's debt, like a small help. And she's moved a second time. She's not telling her parents her new address. I think my parents also need to improve themselves. I mean, they also need to learn to be responsible for themselves. Eris is using her savings to study for law school. And、lately, she's been thinking a lot about that expression. Early birds have something to eat. That her mom always said. I think、uh, this phrase is telling people that you have to suffer pain. Like if you don't get up early, you will have no worms. But who told you that birds can only eat worms? There are so many different kinds of worms in this world. Some worms may get out in the morning, but some may get out <laughs> at night, right? Just this March, a National People's Congress delegate—that's China's parliament—suggested passing laws to guard against four subcultures that have had quote a corroding effect on the values of young people: LGBT culture, study abroad programs, fan culture. And song culture.、Uh, incidentally, by the way, three of those four have been the subject of Rough Translation podcast episodes. 
Next week on At Work, we go from state-sponsored exhaustion to state-mandated rest. I mean, people are just simply happier to take a break, uh, some downtime during the workday. It's good for their well-being. I hear that. I just don't buy it. What happens when you live in a country where it is illegal to work through your lunch break? I come from the U.S., and I love a productive lunch. <laughs> That's next week on our series At Work. That was an episode from Rough Translation. Big thanks to Gregory Warner for chatting with us. That's it for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, tell a friend. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Simone Perez, Maria Jimena Aragon, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. I'm Laura Rossbrautellum. Thanks so much for listening. Till next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. When we feel better, we do better. That simple message is what Feel Better with Tara Styles is all about. We share informative, inspiring, and healing conversations with respected leaders whose work embodies the action of making our world a better place. We also share simple practices based in meditation, Tai Chi, and gentle yoga that are a relief to breathe along with, whether you have time to stretch out on the ground or you're busy getting ready for your day. Settle in and enjoy learning something new that will surely support your well-being, inspire your creativity, and help you feel a whole lot better. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.